Coming up, what does Stephen Hawking's memoir reveal about his character? It's not like most memoirs. This is sort of written like you imagine he wants his Wikipedia article to read. He talks about himself as if he were an object in a dispassionate way. And we retrace the footsteps of an infamous 20th century zoologist. As a little adventure in uh, 1998, we made a list of the species that Taylor had discovered and went on a drive north in the Philippines and tried to retrace his footsteps and go back to the same town with, with, the, with the goal of finding that species. Plus, scientists have managed to make stem cells inside mice. We'll find out how in just a moment. You're listening to The Nature Podcast for the 12th of September 2013. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Noah Baker. Nearly a decade ago, Japanese scientist Shinya Yamanaka worked out that it's possible to turn adult cells into stem cells using just four factors. Since then, scientists all over the world have been using his recipe to make stem cells in the lab. Pluripotent stem cells can form almost any type of cell in the body, so they're useful for basic research. But biologists also hope to one day use them to repair damaged tissue, or even to grow whole new organs. This week, a team of scientists has moved stem cell research from the Petri dish to a living animal. They've made stem cells inside a mouse by reprogramming the animal's body cells. It's an impressive feat, says George Daly from the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. There are many laboratories now around the world that can reprogram back to pluripotency in the Petri dish. But this demonstration that you can do it actually within the tissues of animals is quite striking. The result was so striking that even the researchers didn't expect it. Here's lead author Manuel Serrano at the Spanish National Cancer Research Centre in Madrid. The conditions in vivo within an animal are completely different from the conditions in the laboratory. The expectation was, well, this is going to be impossible. But impossible it wasn't. Manuel's team genetically modified mice to include Yamanaka's four reprogramming factors. The factors control which genes are switched on or off in the cell's genome. When they activated the factors, the team saw telltale signs of stem cells. These mice have these reprogramming factors silent under normal conditions. And when we want to activate the reprogramming factors, we add this antibiotic called doxycycline to the mice. And when we activate these reprogramming factors in the mice, the mice develop teratomas. Teratomas are tumours made up of different types of tissue. They cropped up in different parts of the mice's bodies, including the stomach, pancreas and kidney, indicating that cells in these organs had been reprogrammed into pluripotent stem cells. The surprise left Manuel's team searching for an explanation. The conditions of the laboratory that we thought that were so important, apparently they are not that important. Or, alternatively, in vivo, the living organism is not so different from the conditions that we use in the laboratory. That is the the other explanation. Many labs around the world can reprogram adult cells back to stem cells in a Petri dish. So why was Manuel's team the first to do it in a living organism? According to George, it was the team's ingenuity that was the key to their success. It's just a clever experiment. As is often the case when something is quite remarkable, people step back and say, I wonder why I didn't think of that. I mean, there are many groups, including our own, who have these mice. We could have done this experiment. I think most groups probably thought, oh, it's a fanciful experiment. It's not going to teach us anything. 
Growing stem cells in a chosen organ could enable scientists to repair the organ without needing to transplant tissue grown in a petri dish. But the newly reprogrammed cells showed an added advantage. The in vivo produced cells are closer in terms of gene expression pattern to the embryonic stem cells than the in vitro produced pluripotent cells. This similarity suggests that Manuel's stem cells are more plastic than those made in a culture. That is, they can differentiate into a wider range of cells. So how might you do the same in humans? Manuel's team was successful because they could genetically modify their mice to include Yamanaka's reprogramming factors. But you can't genetically modify a human patient. Manuel points out that science has other tricks up its sleeve. One possibility that, that is technically feasible is to use viruses. There are viruses that are not pathological. They can be used to introduce these reprogramming factors into a particular location. And the other way is the chemical reprogramming. By using only chemical products, this can be added locally in the damaged tissue and induce reprogramming. Although tissue reprogramming in human patients is a long way off, the new work in mice shows it might be possible. Manuel's team are now offering their mice to other scientists. We want people that are experts in cardiac regeneration or hepatic regeneration or pancreatic and so on to use these mice to see if reprogramming can actually regenerate damaged tissues. To George, this potential is exciting. Just think about the prospect of being able to treat locally a tissue with certain factors that would allow you to regenerate heart muscle or regenerate insulin-producing beta cells. I think the prospects for regenerative medicine, the way in the future, are really raised and made, made quite provocative by this paper. George Daly from the Harvard Stem Cell Institute and before him Manuel Serrano of the Spanish National Cancer Research Centre in Madrid. You can find the paper plus a News and Views article co-authored by George at nature.com nature. Still to come in the research highlights, how lemurs help babies learn and the solar system's biggest volcano. But before that... Stephen Hawking is regarded by many as one of the greatest living scientists. At 21, he was diagnosed with a degenerative motor neuron disease and given two years to live. But he defied medical predictions and continued working, publishing important work on black holes, research which he continues today, aged 71. This autumn, we hear the story in his own words as he publishes his memoir. The realisation that I had an incurable disease that was likely to kill me in a few years was a bit of a shock. However, while I was in the hospital, I had seen a boy I vaguely knew die of leukaemia in the bed opposite me, and it had not been a pretty sight. Whenever I feel inclined to be sorry for myself, I remember that boy. Also released this autumn is Hawking, a film documenting his life, narrated by Hawking himself and directed by Stephen Finnegan. Robert Kreese from the Department of Philosophy at Stony Brook University in New York has reviewed both the memoir and the film for Nature. I called him up asking why people are so curious about the life and works of Stephen Hawking. Well, he's a powerful symbol of overcoming handicaps and of human mortality. You know, science has very few celebrities, and those celebrities are very important as a kind of intermediary between the public and the field of science, and he seems to be it right now. Is this fame something which he discusses? Often in memoirs, 
the, the reason you write a memoir is that you're curious about aspects of your life and you feel you can only answer them by actually going through the effort of putting it down on paper. Well, in the book, Hawking exhibits no curiosity about how he became the most famous living scientist. He just recognizes that he has uh, become that. At one point in the movie, he says, being in the public eye can have its drawbacks. Really? Gosh, who would have thought that? Writing a book can't be particularly easy for Stephen Hawking without use of his hands. How exactly did he go about doing this? Yeah, well, that's a a good point. He wrote the memoir using a sensor which is attached to his glasses uh, that responds to cheek muscle twitches, which apparently control a a cursor on a computer. Do you think this is something that contributes to the, the brevity of the book? It's quite short. Possibly. At 20,000 words, it's shorter than many Wikipedia articles. But um, yes, the book is written by cheek movements, but behind those movements is one of the smartest minds on the planet that uh, has you know, time to make choices of what, and, uh, what he's not going to say. And what are we going to learn from this memoir? It's not like most memoirs. You expect a memoir to take us behind the scenes in one way or another. But um, here... He doesn't. This this is sort of written like you imagine he wants his Wikipedia article to read. It's a little bit plodding. He talks about himself as if he were an object in a dispassionate way. He doesn't go into much detail. And so it's factual, unemotional, and carefully phrased. Our first child, Robert, was born after we'd been married for about two years. Shortly after his birth, we took him to a scientific meeting in Seattle. That was a mistake. I was not able to help much with the baby because of my increasing disability, and Jane had to cope largely on her own and got very tired. Her tiredness was compounded by further travelling we did in the United States after Seattle. Robert now lives in Seattle with his wife Katrina and their children, George and Rose, so obviously the experience didn't scar him. There's none of the messy details of the transgressive information or the shocking revelations of the score settling that you find in a lot of memoirs. There's no dark secrets that are revealed. So it's dispassionate, it's not particularly behind the scenes. What's the value in having this book? I don't know. It certainly feeds our, our curiosity about the person. I mean, he's a celebrity, and the lives of celebrities are inherently interesting. What do you get from the film? How is this different from the kind of memoirs that, that Stephen Hawking himself has written? At one point in the book, he talks about when he got diagnosed with a disease. Um, and he mentioned that he felt like he was a tragic character and started listening to Wagner. The doctors told me to go back to Cambridge and carry on with the research I had just started in general relativity and cosmology. But I was not making progress because I didn't have much mathematical background. And anyway, it was hard to focus when I might not live long enough to finish my PhD. I felt somewhat of a tragic character. I took to listening to Wagner. That's interesting. Why Wagner? Why not Verdi or Puccini or Mascagni? You know, whatever the answer is, that's going to tell us something about his personality. But we never hear it, so the reaction remains kind of bland. But in the film, we actually do hear Wagner on the soundtrack. And, and the, the film is diverting in ways that the, the book is not. We actually see scenes of these things happening. Is this dispassionate writing style a reflection of his character? It is part of his character. His, he, he, he's very focused. If he doesn't take us behind many scenes, it's because he's not interested in, in those scenes. If he doesn't do the kind of thing that a memoir does, it's probably because those really don't interest him. He is focused on, on literally the, the bigger issues. He, he reveals his character sort of inadvertently in this, this memoir by the questions that he avoids as much as the questions that he answers. You know, in the movie, he begins by saying, this film is a personal journey through my life told in my own words. But he only tells us a part of it which is okay, but it just means that the memoir leaves us with more questions than we came to it with. 
That was Robert Kreese of Stony Brook University in New York. Soon we'll be frog hunting in the jungles of the Philippines, but first it's time for the research highlights read by Marion Turner. <coughs> Lemur calls like this can help very young babies to learn, suggesting a fundamental link between learning and language. After birth, babies begin to group objects into categories. Researchers in the US showed babies of different ages pictures of dinosaurs and fish. Three-month-old babies who saw the pictures whilst listening to lemur shrieks or human speech learned to distinguish a dinosaur from a fish. But by six months, the primates' calls no longer helped the babies. The team says a baby's brain is initially attuned to human and non-human speech, but quickly learns to respond only to human language. Read more in PNAS. An enormous volcano in the Pacific Ocean could be the largest in our solar system. Tamu Massif is submerged in the sea east of Japan. Until now, geologists believed it was built up from several volcanoes, whose lava merged into one huge pile. But researchers who sent seismic waves through the mountain think it's a single volcano. The seismic data shows that all the lava erupted from a single magma vent. At 650 kilometres wide, the beast is even bigger than Olympus Mons on Mars, which was thought to be the biggest volcano in our solar system. Find that paper in Nature Geoscience. That's the call of Platymantis cornutus, a horned tree frog that lives in the northern Philippines. Or does it? The frog was named by an American called Edward Taylor in 1922. Taylor spent many years collecting specimens in the Philippines. He was one of the most prolific herpetologists of his generation, naming several hundred new species of frog, lizard and snake. But he was, some say, a veritable ogre and a spy. Suffices to say, Taylor is a controversial figure. Many of the species he named were subsequently declared invalid or duplicates. Others haven't been seen since he described them. And that's a worry because rampant deforestation is threatening the biodiversity of the Philippines. So what about that horned tree frog? Rafe Brown has been following the jungle paths that Taylor once trod in search of this frog and other Taylor species. Rafe is from the University of Kansas Natural History Museum, where Taylor once worked, and Charlotte Stoddart called him up. How was Edward Taylor viewed by his contemporaries? Well, it's hard for me to say. I wasn't around back then, but he was viewed, I think, as a very independent, extremely hardworking, very prolific, and sometimes controversial and a little eccentric. But there was this competitive side of him, um, and he had an abrasive personality, and he'd certainly rubbed some people the wrong way. What about this speculation that Taylor was a spy? <laughs> The urban legends and the, the stories that surround Taylor as, as having had some interaction with the intelligence community is something that comes up all the time when people discuss Taylor. And there are certain um, acts and uh, wartime events that are attributed to him, and some of those are probably true and some of those are not. In one of his um, final works, um, Recollections of a Herpetologist, he even mentions that while out collecting in the forest, he saw a, a group of Japanese troops marching from one area to another, and he reported on the, the troop movements back to the uh, American military. So he was, he was forthcoming about some of those events, for sure. 
How did you come across Edward Taylor? Why, why did you get interested in him? I saw in a herpetology journal an advertisement um, for a expedition herpetologist to go to the Philippines on a six-month biodiversity expedition. And I applied for this position, and um, I got hold of some of Taylor's early monographs, of some of his early works, and I spent a lot of time in the library for a couple of weeks, and I learned everything I could about the herpetofauna, the amphibians and reptiles of the Philippines, so that when my interview came, I could impress these, uh, these folks from the Cincinnati Museum of Natural History and hopefully win a position on that expedition. So I spent a lot of time reading all of Taylor's works and sort of developed this admiration for him. You could see his enthusiasm for the discovery of species that came out in different ways in his, mon in his monographs. By the time I got to the Philippines, I um, got in the habit of rereading his works over and over again to find out exactly where he caught that lizard or exactly which part of the island he found the species of frog. And with those little clues from all of his monographs, I started to be able to find these rare species one at a time. And each one was a great, you know, a, a thrill and a bit, a bit of a discovery. And one of those species was the horned tree frog that we heard at the uh, beginning there. Exactly. Platymantis cornutus. Uh, Taylor described it as distinct because it had enlarged tubercles on its eyelids that looked like horns to him. And so as at a little adventure in uh, 1998, we made a list of the species that Taylor had discovered and went on a drive north in the Philippines and tried to retrace his footsteps and go back to the same town with, with, the, with the goal of finding that species. We got there late in the afternoon, and we were really anxious and didn't have, we didn't have a lot of time, and we only had a couple days, so we really wanted to get in the forest as quickly as possible. And we found a, a boy in the village who would guide us to the nearby patch of forest. And as we walked in, it started raining, which is perfect, because that's when these frogs start calling. And uh, when they call, when you hear their mating call, that's how you find them. Otherwise, they're terrifically um, difficult to find, uh, perched up in trees, etc. And so we hiked up this mountain and sort of it, as the sun went down and it got dark, it started raining and we heard this loud, really fast, repetitive call and tracked it down to a particular tree and climbed up in the tree and found it and pulled it down and looked at the frog and looked at each other and, and uh, it was just, just as Taylor said with the horns on the, on the eyelids. We were convinced in an instant that we had found Platymantis cornutus. It sounds certainly exciting and very satisfying. Is there more to it than that? I mean, what, what's the broader significance of finding these species? I mean, I think those of us who are working on, on these types of faunas have a, just an inherent satisfaction with leaving the world a little bit more diverse than we found it, I guess. But uh, sort of the more practical reason, and of course the most important thing right now with development and the growing human population, is to make the presence and the existence of these species known to the world for conservation purposes. These types of, of data that are derived from endemic species, that is species that occur nowhere else in the world, they might be restricted to a single island, or in many cases in the Philippines, even to a single mountain. Um, those are the, the raw fuel for conservation efforts, and those are the reason why we put national parks in particular areas. So um, that's the really most important thing, and that's what we hope will, will happen with all the data and all the information we collect. That was Rafe Brown talking to Charlotte Stoddart, and thanks to The Tunk from freesound.org for the jungle sounds. News time now. Our news reporter Richard Van Norden joins me in the studio. Richard, the first story you have for us today is about grey wolves. We're writing about the very contentious topic of whether the grey wolves should be removed from the endangered species list in America. 
What's the current situation? Are there are there many grey wolves over in America? Well, there are actually quite a lot. Now, a century ago, or more than a century ago, there were many, many more. And since then, the wolf has been hunted, trapped, poisoned, nearly out of existence, at least in the lower 48 states. There are still a lot of wolves in Canada and in Alaska. And in 1978, in an attempt to rescue the grey wolf, uh, the US Fish and Wildlife Service put it on the endangered species list. Right now, the wolves have bounced back, partly as a result of the practices that have been undertaken since they were put under protection, to the extent that in 2011, they were actually delisted in some states in the US. And now in seven states in America, you can hunt gray wolves, there's a hunting season. But in the other states, uh, it's still not allowed. This year, the Fish and Wildlife Service is suggesting removing gray wolves entirely from the endangered species list. And this has led to a very contentious battle between people who say, well, hang on a minute, the wolf has not nearly recovered to the levels it was at a century ago. And others saying, well, the grey wolf has recovered enough, and if we let it expand any further, it's going to be danger to cattle and to ranchers. If the population hasn't bounced back to 1920s levels, why should we remove them from the list? Well, there's two things going on here. The Fish and Wildlife Service says that the plan all along was to get the wolves to an appreciable number to declare recovery, delist the species of grey wolf, and then concentrate the agency's efforts on other species that need their attention. And one of those would be the Mexican wolf, which is a subspecies of the grey wolf that's still endangered. There's also a perhaps a tinge of political expediency here. They want to cut costs. And uh, they've been trying to delist the, the grey wolf for, for many, many years. And is there a chance that in a few years' time we could see the need to put them back on the list? Well, what's going to happen in the future really depends on what the public think about whether wolves should be shot or, or not. Um, there are lots of groups who already protest wolf hunting, even where it is legally allowed, like defenders of wildlife. And others, like those affiliated with ranchers and hunters, say wolves should be aggressively controlled. And uh, even uh, ranchers who have legally shot wolves that were attacking their livestock have had death threats from individual wolf supporters. So the question of whether in the future wolves will be... Um, uh, shot down to lower levels or whether they will thrive and, and therefore whether or not they'll have to go back on an endangered species list it really depends on how these ranchers, hunters and campaigners intersect with each other. It's also their attitudes that will ultimately affect whether the Fish and Wildlife Service do remove the wolf from the list. OK, and moving to another story, perhaps an even more controversial issue, fracking. This story is about what scientists are doing to work out what chemicals are used in fracking. So one of the problems with fracking in which you um, inject high-pressure water uh, deep into shale to try and break it up and, and get gas out that was previously um, impossible to recover is that instead of just putting high-pressure water in, uh, companies also inject uh, chemicals into that mixture and there's a fear that the chemicals could uh, spread out and contaminate the groundwater. What chemicals are currently being used? That is the multi-million dollar question because companies don't have to disclose what chemicals they use. Uh, but as our story explains this week, um, this is starting to happen. There isn't actually any regulation requiring this at all in the United States yet. Uh, that's a big area of contention. But already there are online chemical disclosure registries like Frac Focus, which is assembling a list of the mixtures used uh, by lots of oil and gas wells across the United States. And some companies are volunteering uh, their information, even when states don't have disclosure requirements. The problem is that the data is incomplete, it's difficult to compare, it's unconsolidated, 
And companies can basically omit information if they want to in the interest of protecting their intellectual property. Typically, the fluids are mostly water and sand. Sand is used to prop these fractures in the rock open. Uh, but we also have chemicals including acids that dissolve the minerals in the rock, uh, gelling agents which suspend sand in the water, and things called breakers which instigate a kind of delayed breakdown of these gels, friction reducers to lubricate the cracks that the water's got to go through, uh, and then biocides and inhibitors of corrosion protect the pipes that are drilled down uh, into the rock. So these are all the kind of chemicals used in fracking that we're talking about. And has there been evidence gathered to suggest that these chemicals are having a harmful effect? Well, this is very difficult. Often you find uh, trace concentrations of dangerous metals and radionuclides like arsenic and, and barium uranium uh, in the rock in the wastewater produced by oil and gas companies. The problem is they can also be found naturally in groundwater. So there's been a lot of contention about whether the fracking is, is causing this effect. Now, the researcher we talked to, a geochemist called Brian Ellis, basically wants to um, work out whether uh, chemicals are having this effect, and he wants to help companies select better chemicals that would minimise the potential for contamination. What he's doing is mixing different chemicals into um, oil and gas-rich shale rock inside a pair of high-pressure chambers that he's building, and then he's going to explore the reactions that occur when these fracking fluids are injected deep underground. And would replacing these chemicals be more expensive than the ones currently used? Well, that is always the that is always what fracking companies say that uh, extra regulation, replacing chemicals, uh, more security measures, more safety measures would increase the cost of fracking. And if you increase the cost of fracking, you increase the cost of the oil and gas. Um, but I think the sensible position is well, you've got to have more regulatory and safety measures than we currently do, if, if in the end, even to ensure public trust and public acceptance. Otherwise, these companies won't get to do anything at all. OK, thanks, Richard. Remember, you can read both of those stories and more at nature.com news. That's it for this week. Tune in next time when we'll be asking the big questions about sea level rise. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Thea Cunningham. Cunningham.